Hello and welcome to the inaugural Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. My mission is to bring athletes, parents, coaches and practitioners scientifically valid sports nutrition and sports performance information through the specific lens of athletes with a disability. Because this is such a diverse spectrum in terms of impairments, sports and levels of participation, the choice of topics is enormous. So the first few podcasts will give you a taste of what's to come. Today it's my great pleasure to be joined by the uh, Associate Professor Nick Bird um, as we discuss protein and protein needs of athletes. Uh, so thank you, Nick, for joining us. I'm just going to do a little bit of background. Nick is the Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Community Health at the University of Illinois, uh, and he leads the Nutrition and Performance Research Group. He has a Bachelor's of Science and a Master's in, at Ball State University. He did his PhD at McMaster University with Stu Phillips, and a postdoc at Maastricht University with Luke Van Loon. Uh, both Stu and Luke are two of the leading lights when it comes to protein research. So um, Nick has certainly got a, a good pedigree behind him. Uh, so welcome to the show, Nick. Um, yeah, it's great thanks, to have thanks, you with Liz. us. Yeah, it's happy to be right. here. I, um, in the background of, of Nick's uh, office, he's got maps of both Maastricht and also his current location in Champaign in oh. the States. You're also, maybe you can see one more, Hamilton oh, as and, well. Oh, Canada. <laughs> okay, so he's multinational. <laughs> we won't get him to speak um, in, in multiple languages at hmm. this point in time, though. <laughs> Nick, there's been a huge focus in the past 15 years or so on protein recommendations for athletes. And athletes have taken this on board with enthusiasm, as have the supplement industry. While the initial studies gave recommendations based on um, the amount of amino acids um, that may be required, there, there seems to have been, I guess, over the last 10 years or so, um, initially a lot of athletes think that it's amino acids that they need rather than whole proteins that, um, you know, there's a lot of amino acid supplementation that happens like branch chain amino acids and, and other things. Um, but you seem to be more interested in the whole food protein. So can we go and look at, you know, your interest in whole food protein and why that's important to remember that um, it's not just an amino acid just because that's what you're measuring that is having the the impact or the is what is needed by the muscle, but rather the the whole pro the whole protein in the t in, and why food is is an important avenue of getting that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, we sort of I mean, as scientists, right? I mean, we love reductionist approaches, right? They're just cleaner, easier to easier to study. So it made sense. Yeah. I mean, to, to focus on a single nutrient because that's the right starting point, right? I mean, yeah. Early on, it was feeding crystalline or free amino acids, and then we shifted on to studying isolated food proteins, um, whether it's whey, casein, soy. Uh, those are the big ones that are uh, um, being studied at the moment. And now the plant-based world has been diversified a little bit. There's there's laboratories understanding um, you know, how other types of plant-based foods are impacting um, 
based on this conversation, protein synthesis. Um, and so those, that was all interesting and that was the right starting point. Um, but then, you know, ultimately, or, you know, we eat foods, not single nutrients. Um, obviously, that's, that seems pretty logical. So it was time. At some point, we needed to shift out of that reductionist model and try to get a little more holistic. So, you know, the single nutrient, yeah, i.e. the amino acids, understanding how they're regulating protein metabolism makes sense. Shifting up to an isolated food source, that made sense, right? A more intact food protein. But now the logical extension of that was to, okay, how does food um, impact the regulation of protein metabolism? I guess, you know, I really got interested um, trying to understand these these food matrix effects. So the food matrix is just sort of the chemical dynamics of food. So the nutrient-nutrient interactions, um, food structure would be part of that. We all sort of know um, that, you know, it's easy to change the food matrix by cooking it, right? You're going to denature some of those proteins, um, even the different types of heat treatment, different cooking methods can impact food structure more or less, right? We want to cook at a certain temperature to denature them, make um, those uh, peptide bonds more accessible by proteolytic enzymes. If we cook them too hard, as has been shown by some researchers, um, that you can actually start to oxidize some of that uh, food protein, cause protein aggregates um so hurt digestibility in a negative sense so you know we can we can you know we it's good to cook a little bit but you can also go too far one direction um so food structure was an interest um and then you know i think it goes back to um, a study conducted by kevin tipton honestly sort of got swept under the rug a little bit so 2006 um he he just looked at uh, amino acid uptake across the leg in response to eating or drinking um, whole milk versus skim milk or an isoenergetic control. And in that particular study, again, using indirect methods of protein metabolism, he showed that the whole milk was more anabolic than skim milk, right? And then, you know, that, that was conducted in 2006, and I don't think anybody really understood the data um, or the results it sort of got like pushed aside. Right. And then that's when, you know, the, the king of proteins came in whey protein and all this is sort of really mm-hmm. took over the field. Um, but you know, I never forgot about that study. And then it sort of brought me to, um, a more recent study, which was sort of, um, a repackaging of that Kevin Tipton study, just using a different food source, namely because we had those labeled eggs, as I alluded to earlier, where we just fed, um, a whole egg or an isonitrogenous amount of egg whites. Right. Um, and then we, we showed a greater anabolic potential by its ability to elicit a greater rise in protein synthesis during recovery from resistance exercise by the whole eggs versus the egg whites. And that was real exciting. Um, it's like, okay. Yeah. The problem with that particular study was that we, the whole egg, we can't fully attribute it to the, the, to the food matrix because there's ultimately more energy in there, right? Mm-hmm. Higher energy load yeah. versus yeah. the egg whites, right? But we still did potentiate the response. And, you know, based on a whole host of other res- uh, data, we generally don't consider the energy content of the meal being the primary driver, right? We need, it needs to have some energy, but it doesn't need 
to have a lot, right? I mean, that's, that's what's so interesting. I mean, we can feed a single amino acid leucine and cause a robust increase in protein synthesis, right? It's, it's crazy that it doesn't take a lot of energy to actually elicit a, a large rise in protein synthesis in humans. Um, but that study was conducted and that's, you know, when I saw that, you know, based on Kevin Tipton's original data with the whole milk and then the, the whole eggs, um, that really sort of excited me and um, sort of really started thinking about the food matrix, trying to leverage other nutrients within a within the whole food source to potentiate the response, right? And this has sort of yeah. brought me to this concept that, um, you know, when it comes to dietary protein requirements, um, sometimes the word maximal response versus an optimal response, they get used interchangeably, right? Mm-hmm. Maximal versus yep. optimal. And when you, you can just say, and it sounds like they, yeah, it means the same thing. Yeah, easy. Yeah, but... A maximal response is, in my mind, is very different than an optimal response. Now, when you feed an isolated food source, whether it's whey, soy, what have you, um, in different doses and graded amounts, right, you generally see a step rise increase in protein synthesis. And then it ultimately plateaus, right? And, you know, the most common um, notion or recommendation out there is that, hey, in an 80-kilo athlete, um, at least after weightlifting, um, about 20 to 25 grams of protein is going to cause a plateau in the muscle protein synthetic response, the remodeling response, the adaptive response, whatever word you want to use, um, with further, uh, in- further intakes of protein, just leading to the larger increases in amino acid oxidation or waste, right? Taking those carbon skeletons and making acetylcholate as opposed to using those to actually build functional protein, all right? But when you look at those curves, at that supposedly optimal response based on isolated food protein, what you also know are large rises in amino acid oxidation, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you get, a, you get a plateau, but you also see a large rise in oxidation at that same point, right? And now that's indicative to me of a maximal response. An optimal yeah. response is when we can elicit a large rise in protein synthesis without eliciting a lot of amino acid oxidative waste. Yeah. It's nearly impossible to do that with an isolated food protein because it's all there's, it's just amino acids. That's the only thing you can leverage, right? When we use a whole food source of protein, we can we can leverage those nutrient-nutrient interactions. We can leverage that extra energy to slow down gastric emptying, to slow down the appearance rate of these amino acids. Um, and what we note is that um, we can cause, with whole food sources of protein, we can cause a large rise in protein synthesis with minimal amino acid oxidative waste. So in my mind, you know, that's how you're going to optimize response. Whole food sources of protein, you can optimize response. Isolated food proteins, it's, it's a maximal response. You know, at the end of the day, they're both causing the same. <laughs> you're going to get the same result, but a maximal you're getting, response. But you're not, but you're not losing, you're not losing yeah. half of what you're putting in That's, by yeah. kind of being burnt up as or, or being wasted. You're actually utilizing every yes. component of and, what you're consuming. And, and also, yeah, the diet quality, right? We're also leveraging those other nutrients as, as, as part yeah. of the overall nutritional plan, right? I mean, I would say uh, isolated food protein, it works, it's convenient. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not that exciting, right? It's just 
<laughs> I mean, anybody can just eat a big bolus of food and, you know, isolated food protein and cause an increase in protein synthesis. But yeah, as you know, the rigors of a, tra a travel schedule, um, you know, um, in between multiple events, you know, something that we can get in the circulation quickly, um, you know, is beneficial, right? And the isolated food proteins do have a spot within athletic uh, menu, of course. I'm not saying that. It's just, um, uh, it's just autom automatically a lot of athletes and even the general population, they turn to those as the ultimate protein, right? No, they're kind of complementary. Yeah. They're not, <laughs> yeah, they work, yeah. they're fine. But if you can get your protein from these whole food sources of, um, uh, you know, of, of protein, then that's, then that's so much, it's so much, I mean, it's exciting to me because we don't even know, you know, it's strange that this, you know, we, what is it, 2021? And we, you know, we're still trying to understand how food impacts our muscle, right? Which seems absurd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, like well, there's a never ending supply of research studies, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. It's harder to find money for that stuff, sadly. But yeah, yeah. there is. So, you know, I mean, that's sort of um, those original studies. And we've since then sort of um, tried to address that a little more scientifically. Um, and this, this stuff has been shown only at conferences. I've been, you know, I think, um, the lead author on this is Kevin Paulison. I've been sitting on it for a week or two, just been, um, just haven't had time to sit down and read, read the, the manuscript draft properly. But we, we sort of tried to tackle that feed matrix question a little better, um, by using, um, a whole food source of protein in this case, salmon. And then what we did was we sent a piece of that salmon out to get analyzed. So we knew everything that was in that salmon. And then we sort of re-engineered it with isolated nutrients. Mm -hmm. And then what we did was have some young men and women come in the lab before about a resistance exercise. And we fed them that intact food in the form of salmon or the re-engineered salmon in the form of those isolated nutrients and studied the, the post-exercise remodeling response. So, you know, same energy load, same everything. The difference is some of those amino acids were still in the food matrix and some were not. And, and what we found out, you know, this is where stats plays a role. We saw about a 30% greater increase with the salmon. Um, if you just do the math, um, um, with the salmon versus the isolated nutrients, but statistically it didn't come out. And I think it's because we're just underpowered. We only had about 10 to, I think it was 10 participants and using mm -hmm. isolated food. That's, that's enough. But as we start to progress into these whole food sources of protein, um, we probably need to enroll a few more participants to allow us to detect some of these food matrix effects. But we didn't have that information um, before this study. So um, future studies, we're starting to take that into account. And, um, mm -hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, I think wow, it's, fantastic. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's fun. And I think there's something with the lipid, the lipid rich food matrix too. Um, I, I mm -hmm. really believe there's some connection with uh, the mitochondrial uh, physiology and protein synthesis. And I, I just can't pinpoint it yet. That stuff. It's the problem with the food matrix. It's hard to study. Again, you, as a scientist, we like to turn it into, okay, let's 
just pull it apart and study it and try to pinpoint it on one <laughs> one nutrient. But the food matrix, it doesn't work it, like that. No, it and, interacts with each other and yeah. that's why food is so important because it's got so many extra things that you just don't even know about yeah. um, that food can be more powerful. But that's – oh, thanks, Nick. That's, that's, that's amazing. Hot off the press. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that stuff has been presented. I mean, with the, the state of COVID and everything, a lot of these conferences have been – you know, via virtual. So some of that, mm. is, the data is out there, but it, it probably didn't get as much attention because it's, you know, when you're not, you know, in person there, being able to talk about it, it changes things. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about some of that stuff that we presented at virtually at other conferences. Um, and I guess the final point there with the food, I think the some of the protein recommendations now, um, you know, are high because they're based off of isolated food proteins, right? I think once we start to gain information from whole food sources of protein, I think some we can start to titrate down some of these protein recommendations. Um, so they're not so, you know, so right now they're pretty high, you know, you know, especially for the older adult. Um, so, you know, but, you know, that's where, that's what we know right now. And it just takes time to sort of tune that in, right? For the longest time, the RDA, the protein RDA um, was sort of um, the gold, the gold standard. It still is, you know, the RDA is very good at doing what it's supposed to do, prevent a deficiency, right? It never was developed yeah, for, the for an athletic, yeah, yeah, for the athletic population. And that's why I hate when people are beating up on the RDA. I'm like, it's doing its job. Is doing what it's supposed mm-hmm. to. <laughs> it was up to us to sort of tune that in a little more for the athletic population. And, you know, still, you know, I know you're interested in endurance athletes. That's an area that, you know, Dan Moore up in Toronto has been doing a good job on this, but trying to tune that in even more. I mean, with an endurance athlete, um, it's, it's very different than a weightlifter, right? In yeah. terms of what we're seeing is that their protein recommendations perhaps could be elevated against a weightlifter, namely because when they're exercising, um, they're getting a lot of amino acid oxidation. In, in particular, leucine oxidation rates are going to go up. Um, and so during recovery from that bout, not only do they have to repair and remodel their muscle, they got to eat enough food protein to also offset all that amino acid oxidative oxidative waste that took place during the actual exercise bout. Right. Um, so I think that's an exciting area. So intensity duration of an mm. endurance exercise bout could impact the subsequent uh, feeding strategy. Right. And that's yeah. where we think that more frequent feeding of protein and carbohydrate, of course, um, is probably required to make sure that we're replacing all that amino acid oxidative waste um, that's occurring. And then, you know, that brings you to, you know, the population of this, uh, you know, parasport, the Paralympians. Um, yeah, I mean, that's such a fascinating population. I mean, that's, you know, as we know, you know, as you told me, the energy requirements of, uh, of a half marathon, you know, some of the work you helped us with versus a able body half marathon is very different, right? It's a very different mm-hmm. machine. Um, and I have no idea, you know, the protein requirements of, um, you know, some of the wheelchair racers, these kind of things I could guess, but those are really cool studies that uh, probably need to be done for sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, the other thing is, as you say, as you said earlier, you know, the, that 20 to 25 grams post exercise recommendation as being 
supposedly optimal or questionably maximal um, protein synthesis for an 80 kilo athlete. Well, what happens if you've got a, a 50 kilo athlete who has, um, you know, a, a, a fairly robust upper body, but um, muscle atrophy in their lower body due to a spinal cord injury? How does that translate? Like, do we still think it's around that you know, because there's a lot of questions, and similarly, even with the the 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilo body mass daily requirements that are out there, again, they're based on um, a certain profile of athlete, and and the difficulty is always, well, how do we translate that into sure. someone whose body composition is a little bit different um, than those those athletes that are studied? Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think, I think it comes down. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. About the, I, I think it comes down to, are you going to buy into the notion that the amount of active muscle mass dictates how much protein you you need during exercise recovery, right? That's the first question you'd have to ask yourself. You know, somewhat going again, back to Kevin Tipton's work, he has some work that shows that, you know, perhaps full body exercise puts a little more demand on our food protein than only performing lower body exercise, right? Um. So, you know, that sort of would say, okay, so, you know, in the case of a, a wheelchair racer, yeah, they're up to, they're activating, you know, the upper body on a large level, but not the lower body. So how does that impact their protein requirements? The next point there is what I just said. Endurance athletes are getting more amino acid oxidation during that belt, Right. And the mm-hmm. amount of amino acid oxidation that you get during endurance exercise bout is intrinsically or intimately connected to exercise intensity and duration, right? So, yeah, you could argue that if you buy into that notion that the amount of active, the amount of active muscle mass is a determining factor, um, you would almost argue that, okay, so an, uh, a, a Paralympian or a wheelchair racer Um, their protein requirement could be less, but then you would think, well, but they're getting a lot of that amino acid oxidation perhaps because they're, you know, they're endurance trained. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's sort of that, that moving target, you know, at the end of the day, most practitioners, what, what, what are we doing currently? We're probably aiming a little high, right. Just to cover it. Right. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just like, okay. Yeah, we, we sort of, a healthy kidney is not going to be highly damaged by, or damaged it up whatsoever, and there's evidence of that, by eating a little higher protein diet, right? So why not edge, um, and just go, you know, at the higher end? Uh, maybe it's too much, maybe, you know, but fine. At least we know they're getting enough, right? But then, again, yeah. those are always going to be maximal recommendations. It's just... Yeah. At some point, we not, probably want to get closer. Not necessarily optimal. Yeah, yeah, we want to get back to optimal. You know, um, we don't want to displace other nutrients. I mean, this is more your wheelhouse than mine, of course. Um, mm-hmm. You're, um, that's uh, that's what you you're constantly thinking about. Uh, but certainly, it's in the back of my mind at times as well. So, um, no, it's a fascinating question. But again, all we can do is think about the physiology and you know start to think about it. And then again, usually the default is as well. Yeah, twenty five grams won't hurt anything. Just you know, just let them eat it, right? Yeah. But who yeah. knows? You know, I don't know how much that. Uh, you know, again, I mean, these are high training athletes, at least here on, on campus with the the Paralympians. Um, I mean, the intensity and you know, they sort of that exercise mode is 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 different, right? It's really 
different, you know, it's mm. how hard, I mean, the intensity and the duration. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, I don't know the stress they're placing on physiology. Certainly um, you've thought about that a lot, but in terms of the amino acid oxidation, I have no idea, but it's a fact. So I guess the, the bottom line is eat where you can eat real whole food proteins and eat them regularly throughout the day. Um, and that's probably going to get you at least, you know, 80% of the way to, to where yeah. you need to be to optimize your protein needs. Yeah, until we get some more, like I said, uh, you know, for recovery from an endurance exercise bout, um, you know, yeah, obviously focus of the whole foods. But, you know, there's here's a here's an area where that isolated food protein could be used as a compliment, right? Um, yep. Eat a proper meal afterwards. But let's say, you know, if you can't eat too much protein in that uh, acute recovery meal, just because you're going to start to displace perhaps carbohydrate, fats, these kind of things. But, you know, maybe an hour or two later you know, have a protein shake, you know, something that's easily digested and absorbed, help take some stress off of those, you know, that exercise induced amino acid loss, help your muscles recover. Right. I mean, this is, that's sort of my, my point. A weightlifter, you're fine, but you know, with these endurance athletes, it's a little more dynamic. Mm. It's a, and, you know, then you add the layer of, as we just alluded to uh, a wheelchair racer, Paralympians or uh, para sport. Um, yeah. It's, it's, we don't have enough information on it. We certainly don't. Mm. Cool. Um, thank you, Nick. I, I guess I, at the end, I'm interested in um, what's the study that you'd really like to run if you if, if money was no object. What's you what's in the back of your mind as to what a cool study would be to run right now? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I talk about this. I mean, I'm I'm running a lot of the studies. I think are really cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know just obviously Sue Scaroni is a student within my lab you know um so she's really tuned me in to to um you know her, her sport is uh, the, the wheelchair racing um and I've talked to her so many times about you know I think biopsies are out of the question but you know addressing that very point I just alluded to to help tune in their protein requirements get an understanding of whole body leucine oxidation rates during during in this case it'd have to be a simulated sort of whether it's a marathon half marathon whatever i think that would be so informative to at least let us know okay uh, that side of the equation how much amino acids they need for you know muscle remodeling i mean that would require a biopsy and i'm not i'm not prepared to do that um but um certainly that's a study i would love to run um you know the stuff i alluded to now i think is really important yeah the the food the whole protein foods was a logical step but now we need to start understanding mixed meal combinations right eating patterns um animal versus vegan versus you know all these different eating patterns mediterranean styles um because that's ultimately what we we you know we eat a diet is what we have we don't have isolated you know we don't eat just salmon as a study I just alluded to. No, that's, that's, we're slowly going to get there. And those are the studies we need to run. Um, and then trying to tune in, you know, what is optimal versus maximal, or at least making sure people understand that, <laughs> you know, I get, yeah. I hate, I hate when those words are intertwined so heavily. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. If you want to eat maximally, go for it, but it's not optimally in my opinion. Um, yeah. It's very, those are different words. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Well, yep. Suze is our next guest on, on the podcast, so you've led very nicely into, into what she might have to say. 
Um, one last question, and this is completely off topic. What's your favorite food? Oh, what's my favorite food? Chicken nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> Only because, no, I get tea. Well, usually, no, french fries are actually my favorite food, but my diet is so rich in fish sticks and uh, chicken nuggets because I have two younger kids. So my chicken nuggets <laughs> and fish stick consumption is through the roof the last four or five years. <laughs> but anybody who knows me, my go to is french fries. I don't know. It's just sort of my vice for sure. Very much, Dick, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I think that um, you've given us some really interesting things to consider and, and a bit more insight into the complexities of, of that protein research. And we hope that you continue to get um, good funding and, and keep using your imagination because yep. I think there's still lots lots more to come. Absolutely. Thank excited. you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks.